Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Bridge of Clay is the new sweeping family saga from Marka Zuzak, author of the international bestseller The Book Thief, which swept the world and was made into a movie. Bridge of Clay is the story of five brothers who bring each other up in a world run by their own rules. As the Dunbar boys love and fight and learn to reckon with the adult world, they discover the moving secret behind their father's disappearance. At the center of the Dunbar family is Clay, a boy who will build a bridge for his family, for his past, for his greatness, for his sins, for a miracle. The question is, how far is Clay willing to go and how much can he overcome? Marcus Uzak is author, in addition to the book Thief, of I Am the Messenger, which is an L.A. Times Book Award finalist and Prince Award Honor book. The book Thief was named one of the best books of 2006 by many publications, received glowing reviews from many other publications. Marcus Uzak lives in Sydney, Australia, with his wife and children, and he is launching his U.S. book tour. And Marcus Uzak, welcome to the program. I think we are attempting to establish that uh, yeah. that connection. Here we go. Okay, are are you with us? Uh, can you hear me now? Uh, uh, yes, yes, I can. Uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. <laughs> sorry uh, for the delay. There. Oh no, our 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 uh, our fault there. Sorry about that. Um, so launching the U.S. book tour, I guess uh, three weeks in the U.S., then in the U.K., and then back to Australia. This is you've written uh, another review I read. This is the fun part. Uh, writing is hard. <laughs> uh, meeting the readers is good part. Yeah, it doesn't actually feel like work. You know, I think you spend so much time alone as a writer that, you know, then you get, especially if it takes 13 years to finish a book and then you get unleashed on the world and you sort of say, all right, this doesn't really feel like work. They're putting me on a plane and uh, you'd be silly to complain about that kind of thing. I know other writers who would kill for these sort of opportunities. So um, I'm really looking forward to it and uh, I'm really looking forward to coming to Utah as well. Uh, so, uh, I think you've said that you didn't expect The Book Thief to be a hit. Uh, it became a huge hit. Uh, you, you were just hoping to, to, to get it out there. What, what did you think when it hit so big? Well, I was shocked. <laughs> you know, because I imagined people... Yeah, I, I thought on the off chance, while I was writing it and it was getting bigger and bigger, I, I did have those sort of dreams where I imagined someone actually reading it and then re- trying to recommend it to their friends. And the friend says, well, what's the book about? And uh, and you have to say, well, it's set in Nazi Germany. It's narrated by death. Nearly everyone dies. Oh, and it's 560 pages long. You'll love it. Yeah. You know, so I, I just thought people wouldn't, wouldn't be interested or they'd be turned off or scared of reading it. And, uh, you know, and it turned out to be the exact opposite. And I guess that's not only the beauty of writing and writing books it's the the beauty of being alive is that we're always surprised by things so um you know even now 13 years later it's uh, or 12 years later it's still a shock to me that that book did so well and uh, you know when you <laughs> and it's kind of funny you know it's narrated by death everybody dies in the book uh, you'll love it um why why do you think it hit i don't know i mean the only thing that i can think of is uh, I mean I think there are a lot of factors that have to come together and I think that for me there was just something about that it it almost it almost got touched by a little bit of magic that book and it's just had this magical ride where every time you thought it was going to start waning something new would happen and uh, you know whether it's a film being made or that or there's a play somewhere it it just sort of was was a book that somehow had the legs and uh, but for me 
it was just one of those things where I'd written four books before The Book Thief that really, really meant something to me. And But then when I finished The Book Thief, I worked out, you know, probably a couple of months later. Things always hit you later on. But I, I realized that I, I hadn't written a book that meant something to me. I'd written a book that meant everything to me. And maybe that's what people pick up on. And, uh, and I know that's, you know, I, it's what made writing the new book so hard as well. I thought, all right, now I only want to write books that mean everything to me. Uh, let's talk about that. Thirteen years um, in, in the writing. Um, uh, I want to quote you here. Uh, every book we write means something to us, but sometimes it comes to mean everything. And Bridge of Clay, for me, was that latter type, the book you have to fight for. But it's all the more rewarding. Mm-hmm. What, what were the problems with uh, with, with trying uh, to you know. wrestle that into shape? Uh, you know, just general failure every day for a good decade, <laughs> and uh, and that, but that's that's what makes it worth it. And uh, I just had this. I think I I had a problem. I think after the book thief, where I felt like I'd written above myself, and uh, and I, and I realised I wanted to to do that all the time as well. And I think you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself then. And and I always felt that Bridge of Clay was my best idea. I got the idea when I was 19 or 20 years old and uh, just had this idea for a boy who was building a bridge and he wanted the bridge to be perfect. He wanted it, He wanted to make one great thing. And interestingly enough, one of the first things, I, well, the first three things I think of usually when I'm writing a book is the beginning, the end, and the title. And the title of that idea was originally Clayton's Bridge. And it's just often the littlest things, like it's the little... It's the little um, coincidences that often are your most important moments or ideas. And the fact that his name was Clayton allowed me to then take a next step to call it, no, it's not Clayton's Bridge, Bridge of Clay. And as soon as I thought of that idea for the title, I immediately saw a whole new depth of meaning in the story in that clay as a material can be moulded into anything, but it needs fire to set it. And I then saw a boy walking across the top of a bridge on a flooded river and the sun's coming up in the water. And I was always I was always reaching or heading towards that moment in the book. But, of course, then you start writing and you go, oh, no, that's not it either. It, you, it, again, then your best idea is left or right or a little forward or behind the idea you thought the idea was. So all of those things are in your mind and you're writing towards that and you know a year goes by and you're still working on the first page and I think I became too obsessed with perfection in the actual writing and I wanted everything to be perfect straight away and then finally you realize the book only has to be perfect once you know and it's not going to be perfect at all and uh, I thought it only has to be right once and that's when it goes to print so, um, but it took me a long time to, to to figure that out. And you learn, you relearn, and you remake all your mistakes on every book. But um, this time around, I think I went a little too far on on trying to make every single thing right all the time. You said something interesting. Um, another piece I was reading. You said you felt like you were trying to make it too easy for the reader. You're trying to make it easier for the reader, and then you, and then then you had a realization that uh, no, maybe that's not the goal. Yeah, I think I look at my favorite books and novels and and uh and often, you know, they they're entire worlds and 
And, and I, I realised in the end that that's what I was trying to do. I didn't want to write a book that you just pick up and easily read and then finish and then get on to your next book. Uh, I had not higher hopes but harder hopes for, for, for what I was trying to do. I wanted to write a book that, that really was a world and meant the world and that, that there were characters in it that would, would really resonate. And, uh, and I think, you know... I, I often, as I said, my favourite books are, are that kind of book. And and I thought there was a time about halfway through where I was writing chapters that I was trying to make them shorter. I was trying to say, that, you know, help the reader and say, oh, let's make this shorter and this book's getting too big. And then I would reread the chapters and they'd be dead. You know, they'd be, they, they read more like chapter outlines than chapters themselves. And... Uh, and it was around that time, that was around 2015, I'd been working on the book for close to 10 years and, and uh, you know, my wife actually said to me, you, you've got a week to get this back on track uh, <laughs> or else, you know, I'm going to make you quit the book And because uh, you're obviously, you know, I think she'd, she'd suffered through a fair bit of, of it with me. So, um, and that was a real turning point. And uh, so I think sometimes you need to know when to step away. But as I said, you know, harder hopes rather than easier hopes for, for both the reader and myself. And, and hopefully, you know, sometimes the work you put into a book, the rewards are all the more greater at the end. And, uh, you know, and hopefully that's the case with this one. So uh, that's extraordinary, an intervention from your wife. Uh, so yeah. so you, you did step away, I guess, and, but, but uh, when you came back, what, what was different? Well, it's funny. I, um, I, you know, it's always a, a more complicated story than we think. But, so I quit the, I actually quit, had to, well, I quit this book twice. And when you think that was, once was in 2015, and once was in 2016. The first time I, I quit for less than 24 hours, and uh, I just I, I thought no, there was a deadline coming up. I knew I couldn't make it, and I just said, I think this is it. I don't think I can go any further with this book because you're talking about thousands, thousands of files on my computer, just different versions of the first chapter, different versions of the first page. Because I always come back to the beginning all the time. And you don't realize at the time how much success you've had because all you're doing is looking at the failures you've had with the book. And um, and so the first time I just quit and I actually, I said, that's it. I just can't work on this book anymore. I need to start something new. And then I went for a surf and then I, I came back and I looked at some of my you know favorite writers' books and recent books that some of them had written and I was reading those and I just thought, yeah, come on, you know, get yourself together. And so I came up with a an entirely new prologue for the book and, and that set me alight again. But then a year later, I was just in the same place. And and it was really, it was the best thing that happened to me, her giving me that week, because nothing changed in that week. It was how I'd always been doing things. I wasn't letting anyone help me. And uh, so for a month, I or more than a month, I didn't work on the book, and uh, and and that was even worse. Like, you know, that was that was like, you know, I, you know, she said to me, just work on something else, you know. And so I started a side project about reading the sort of books that were going to get me back on track, and do that for three months, and um, and kind of make that my job. And you know, but I was 
you know, a month into that and I realised, God, before I was I was writing for the world championship of myself, you know, and now I'm writing this and this almost feels certainly not meaningless, but it, it was exactly what it would be called. It was a side project and uh, and I knew that I wanted this. And what that allowed me to do is, you know, I actually finally started letting people help me and the first person to help me was her because we went away for a weekend and we just read through everything I had to see if there was a book there and three quarters of it was written and we got through we got through those you know 350 pages in in you know we did the first 250 in one day and I I kind of knew I, I said there's a book here there's definitely a book here and that's what made all the difference and then I, I let my editors in to sort of help me more and uh you know and by the end of the year the book was was pretty much written and uh I I finished it you know there was one deadline I still remember was December 19 and on December 18 I started work at 6:30 in the morning and I finished work at 7:30 the next morning mm-hmm. and it wasn't still wasn't finished I still didn't deliver the last quarter of the book but there were treatments and everything was written and uh you know, so I had places to go then, and and I just used a new criteria, which was, is this part alive or is it dead? And if it's dead, get rid of it, or get it to live in a hurry. So I just simplified things, and uh, you know, and just sort of said to myself, you know, when I think we all do this at times where we work really hard at working really hard, and uh, and then you, you, there comes a point where you just say, you know, forget all that, just really get your hands dirty do the work, and stop being so precious. And, mm-hmm. and that's how I ended up finishing the book. Yeah, I think that that's well said. I think sometimes we do. We work really hard at working really hard when what we need to do is, is uh, you know, do the thing. Do it or don't do it, right? Yeah, and also just remember that I think in my case what was really important was just to remember that this, this is what you love, and there's a great joy in in what was going on as well, and all those years of struggling with this book too there's joy in that as well and uh and and part of writing is the struggle and you know if it was easy, everyone would do it and uh if it was easy, it wouldn't be worth anything and uh and so i I started to look upon it more like that it was it's not a burden it's a privilege and uh and I've always loved writing, and I'm happiest when I am writing even when I'm miserable, <laughs> you know. So I think that's all just a part of it. And, and I think understanding that is, is the most important thing and and that always gives you somewhere to go each day. And, and you want to wake up feeling like the book is near you. And, uh, you know, the other way of putting it is to say you can worry today or you can really work. And, uh, and the more work days you have, the better. The more worrying the more days of worry only really set you back. But I guess you need to have them as well um, because we don't, you know, we don't live our lives in a way that's easy all the time. Mm. And, uh, and that's kind of what makes everything worth it. Let's take a break. When we come back, more with Marcus Zuzak. His new book out, uh, Bridge of Clay, uh, much anticipated. Uh, Marcus Zuzak is author of The Book Thief, international bestseller, made into a movie. Bridge of Clay, is, uh, it's, I think it's, it's out. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about The Book Thief and, of course, uh, Bridge of Clay, get into some of the characters. Marcus Zuzak, do you have your book with you? 
Uh, yes, I do. Okay, uh, maybe you could, um, you know, choose a, a, a short passage or, or two of you read. I'd like to get a sample of the book for the listeners, um, and uh, much more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change and the Wasserman Festival, presenting pianist Dong Tai Son, featuring, featuring works of Chopin, Debussy, and Paderewski, Saturday, February 23rd at 7.30 p.m. in the Russell Wanless Performance Hall. More information at usu.edu slash Wasserman. This is Dr. Taki May for Bringing More to Life. Nearly 40% of older adults take five or more prescription drugs. Be proactive with your parents. Keep an updated list of the medications taken with the name of the drug, the dose, how often they take it, and why. Put a copy in your files at home and have your parents carry one in their wallet to show their doctor or share in case of a medical emergency. Encourage them to take medications as directed by their doctor, get refills on time, and stay alert to side effects and interactions by using one pharmacy. Their pharmacist may be able to bubble pack medications to simplify things. Being involved can bring more to their lives in ways you never knew. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of last year. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. My guest for the hour today is Mark Zuzak, author previously of uh, several books, including The Book Thief, which was an international bestseller who made into a movie, the new book, Bridge of Clay. It is uh, out, and uh, Mark Zuzak is on his U.S. Uh, tour. Uh, he lives in uh, Sydney, Australia. Um, and uh, Bridge of Clay is the story of five brothers who bring each other up in a world run by their own rules. As the Dunbar boys love and fight and learn to reckon with the adult world, they discover the moving secret behind their father's uh, disappearance. Marcus Uzak, uh, s- some very touching characters here. The central character, uh, Clay, of course. I wonder if you could tell us about uh, Clay and uh, the other brothers. Interesting that the narrator is Matthew, another brother, who uh, digs up a buried typewriter and begins typing the story. Yeah, um, Clay's just this character who um, Matthew describes as the best of the brothers and uh, he's the one who loved the, the parents, uh, the, the stories of their parents growing up the most and I think he's the one, he says, that he, he took everything on his shoulder and Clay's the one who really risks everything in a way, everything he loves to save it and he ends up leaving his four other brothers to go and build a bridge with their with their father who left them years earlier and uh, and and just the idea of it's funny when i told you earlier about about writing a new prologue and uh, or you know just coming up with something new uh when i was really struggling with the book and when i'd actually quit the book that um matthew goes out and digs up a typewriter that was never the beginning for you know for the first five or six years working on the book or probably yeah about that time that didn't happen. He was sitting on the roof telling the story. And uh, But then I just, when I started writing again, I just thought, do something 
fun. You know, do something or do something that, that is going to excite you. And instead of him sitting on the roof, I had him, which was a very exterior idea. It was always from the outside looking in. And I thought, let's bring him into the house. Let's bring him into the kitchen. And let's not, let's have him tell us a great story. And I thought, what if he goes out into this country town where their dad grew up and they know because Clay's been told the story that, there was once a time where their father, uh, when he was a teenager, his dog was killed by a snake, but they, they basically fought each other. When he came home from school and he found the dog and the king brown snake next to each other and he buried them together. And then when his mum died, he buried the typewriter out there because it just seemed fitting. And, uh, and it's Matthew who goes out, digs it up and starts writing the story about the brother that, you know, they, they all say... You know, everything happened to him and everything changed because of him. We were all of us changed through him. And so I think Matthew and Clay share a particularly special bond and uh, Matthew being the really responsible brother. And then you have Rory, who's the really rough brother. They call him the human ball and chain. Henry's the money-making brother. And Tommy is the youngest and the pet collector who has five pets ranging from a mule to a pigeon, a dog, a cat and uh, a goldfish, all with unusual names. The mule is named Achilles and there's a reason for that. There's a reason for pretty much every single thing in this book. But those five brothers just sort of, you know, they were my pals for the last decade or so. So it's uh, I kind of miss them sometimes. Mm. Yeah, that's a, it's a phenomenon, isn't it? You, you, you sort of send them out into the world. Um, uh, I wonder, is there a passage you could read us? Yeah, sure. I mean, it probably comes on the back of that. I wasn't sure if I should just read the beginning uh, or I should read about um, Matthew's summing up of Clay when he was born and the family was all still together. So we still have Penelope and Michael, their parents, and... Um, and this is how Matthew talks about the, the early part of their lives. Once in the tide of Dunbar past, there were five brothers, but the fourth of us was the best of us and a boy of many traits. How did Clay become Clay anyway? In the beginning, there was all of us, each our own small part to tell the whole, and our father had helped every birth. He was first to be handed to hold us, as Penelope liked to tell it, he'd be standing there, acutely aware, and he'd cry at the bedside, beaming. He never flinched at the slop or the burnt-looking bits as the room began to spin. For Penelope, that was everything. When it was over, she'd succumbed to dizziness. Her heartbeat leapt in her lips. It was funny, they liked to tell us how, when we were born, we all had something they loved. Me, it was my feet, the newborn, crinkly feet. Rory, it was his punched-up nose when he first came out and the noises he made in his sleep. Something like a world title fight, but at least they knew he was alive. Henry had ears like paper. Tommy was always sneezing. And, of course, there was Clay between us, the boy who came out smiling. As the story went, when Penny was in labour with Clay, they left Henry, Rory and me with Mrs Chilman. On the drive to the hospital, they nearly pulled over. Clay was coming quickly. As Penny would later tell him, the world had wanted him badly. But what she didn't do was ask why. Was it to hurt? To humiliate? 
or to love and make great. Even now, it's hard to decide. So that's how Matthew describes Clay um, when he was born, and uh, I thought I'd stop there. I wasn't sure how long I should mm-hmm. go on, but no, that, that felt like the right place to stop. Yeah, that was that, that was excellent. By the way, parenthetically, you've talked about um, uh, being the narrator for the audiobook of, uh, mm-hmm. and and that that was that was an interesting, uh, instructive experience for you. Yeah, it's, uh, it was one of those things where normally it's not the sort of thing that I would do. And, uh, you know, it's really, uh, well, the really nice thing to talk about here is that I've, I've always considered myself a really terrible re- reader of my own writing. And uh, I remember d- doing a reading, oh gosh, this goes back a decade and a half ago when I did a reading at a country library in Australia and a lady came up to me afterwards and said, Hey, I really like your books, but your your reading is atrocious. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I was a bit reticent, mind you. There were there, I remember that particular reading. There was a kid at my feet playing with one of these noise box things. So it was it was a pretty challenging afternoon, but um or evening. But it was one of those things where I read through the books, and as I said earlier, that I I kind of let people in this time, and so I did do some read throughs. Uh, of the book with with uh, with colleagues this time around, and I would read it in two days, and I would read it pretty much. I knew the book so well without making a single mistake. And then when it was suggested to me that I should read the book, I think some people were worried because of how much, how meticulous I am with every comma, every word that I would be unhappy with with the result, uh, or you know, with the book, and that I'd want to change things, but. It's an interesting thing when you do then read it and you know there's no chance of changing anything, that changes your perspective too. And you're concentrating, in my case especially, I was really concentrating on slowing down um, because you, 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 you slowly understand that, or you very quickly understand actually because you're told in no uncertain terms, that you've got to slow down because people are listening to it. They don't have it in front of them and so you've got to let them actually drink the words in a little bit and so they can picture things clearly and you're not just running through and people tune out. And one of the, the biggest skills I learned was that when you really feel like people might be waning or their attention might be waning, it's actually better to slow down than it is to speed up hmm. And uh, because then you're really reinforcing what's happening. And so for me, I think it was more just a, a point where it was a really nice test because I thought, well... I hope I don't read this and feel embarrassed and uh, about the writing. And at, at no point did I feel embarrassed. And that's a testament to to my editors as well, that we, we worked really hard on just shaving all the things off this book that weren't quite right or that went a bit too far. And uh, so I, I was happy in the end with the writing. And, uh, you know, and it was such a great experience. Because a, a writer always works alone and to be in a studio... In Sydney, I'd leave the house every day. I wasn't sitting in my, <laughs> working amongst my own pigsty. Uh, and as the guys there said, well, no, you're just working amongst our pigsty. And I, I said, well, it's a totally, you know, it's such a pleasure to do that, to leave for work every day. Um, and you're not tempted to do the dishes or put washing on and things like that. And it was just a task that I loved. And, uh, you know, and, and I haven't heard it yet. So um, hopefully the result is, is good as well. But it felt really nice to do it. 
If you just joined us, we're talking with Marcus Zuzak, author previously of the book Thief, which of course was an international hit, made into a movie. The new book is Bridge of Clay, and Marcus Zuzak is uh, coming to Utah, an event uh, September 20th. That's a Saturday, uh, hosted by the Kings English Bookshop. That's at Roland Hall School in Salt Lake City, free and open to the public. Marcus Zuzak, it's always um, tempting to try to read autobiography. Uh, and, and sometimes that you know it's it, it's not true at all. I, I wonder. So, you you have said the book thief. Um, part of that came out of stories that your parents would mm-hmm. uh, would uh, tell. They're from I think what Austria and Germany. Yeah. Um, so I, I wonder if that's true. And uh, and then I wanted maybe any autobiographical bits in uh, in the book thief uh, for in in the new book, uh, the Bridge of Clay. I was reading a. Article you wrote for the Sydney Morning Herald on the uh, when when the movie The Book Thief uh, came out, yeah, and you talk about your your brother, but anyway, so yeah. so the so the Book Thief and your parents, yeah, well, the, it's interesting with, with the Book Thief. People often ask me, okay, so it's set in Nazi Germany. You must have done a whole lot of research, and I definitely did. But my answer is usually, you know, that the research I did for that book was actually in my childhood, and. Uh, and you think, what sort of sense does that make? You grew up in Sydney, warm, humid summers, and uh, and you know playing cricket in the and, and and rugby in the backyard. That doesn't seem to have much to do with Nazi Germany. But because of the stories my mum and dad told me from being children at that time, and they were great. I was so lucky because I mean I feel spoiled as the youngest of four children, but not in the way that you know every every spoiled child tells you that they weren't spoiled in the way that you think they would be. And in my case, it was because I got to spend the most, you know, I, I got to spend the most mean, uh, most amount of time with my parents at a time that was meaningful in, in the sense that I didn't get my parents' full attention when I was, you know, anywhere between, you know, a newborn up to, you know, five or six years old, but I got it as a teenager and I loved spending time with my parents and they'd tell these great stories and they were great storytellers about that time and so I it was like scratching something open in my mind and reaching in and pulling that world out and uh, and so yeah there were moments you know and, and things in that book that happened to my parents but then you distill it or you, you look at it and you go you know it's probably only 20% of the book and even then, you're changing things within those 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 scenes and moments because you're a writer of fiction and you've written a certain character a certain way and the true story doesn't actually fit with that. And so you're always, um, you know, I, I guess you're always pressing into it and taking things off it and just changing things so that it suits the actual novel. And sometimes that something can be staring you in the face for, you know, for several drafts before you say, oh, actually, it should be like this. And that's because you're, cre- you're creating a whole different world from those true stories that you were told. Um, as far as Bridge of Clay goes, it's often just the little things. And, you know, one of the real joys of, of writing the book was is just when something does happen and uh, in your own life and and it's just a little vignette in the book and uh, you know one of those one of my favorite moments is in that book and and this is actually the perfect illustration of how a real moment then works in a in a work of fiction is that 
uh, I was on holiday with my family and my son would have been four years old, I think. And he, and I just, you know, it's hot and I just took, and I don't know why I was doing this because my car has always got dog hair and sand and it's useless trying to clean it up really. But I just took my T-shirt off and and just brushed some sand out of my car and my son came around the corner and he saw me without my T-shirt on and he just looked at me and you know how little kids just say the most amazing things sometimes that you would never say um, and you only get it for that little window when they're really little and he looked at me and he said, hey, hey, Dad, what, what are you doing here in just your nipples? And it was such a hilarious thing and other people around laughed at that and, uh, and I thought, I didn't think consciously, oh, I'm going to put that in the book. But then there came a moment where there were the five brothers in Bridge of Clay sitting at the table. Their parents are still with them. And one of the brothers spills all his dinner down the front of his shirt. And the mum, Penelope, finally, she just says, right, that's it. Just take your T-shirt off and uh, you're going to eat dinner without wearing a shirt at all. That's just the safest thing. And uh, and then when the other boys laugh, their dad says, "Oh, you think that's funny?" You know. And then they all have to do it. And then the next night, the dad, uh, Michael, says he decides, "All right, if I'm making you do it, I'm going to do it as well." And and it just builds to a point where then there's a joke about whether their mum should do it. And and it's just one of those moments that where a real life time one sentence in real life can turn into. Um, a paragraph that you love in a book. And so I think it's those little things that are true in the book, but then sometimes it's just a feeling that runs through the whole book. And, you know, I think maybe as the youngest of four children, I, I was always frustrated. I was often frustrated as a kid because, you know, when, when my brother and sisters were playing Monopoly, I was always told, oh, no, no, you won't understand. Too, you're too young. I was too young for everything all the time. And I think whether or not I was going to be ambitious anyway, but I, I, I think I became quite ambitious because of that, because I thought one day I'm going to show everyone. And, and I think Clay, in a way, is that kind of, not necessarily his motivation to show everyone, but I think he wants to, he, he, in his case, he wants to atone for what he feels are, are things that he's gotten wrong to make this one beautiful, perfect thing, which is the bridge he then goes and builds with their father after he's left them. And I think that's how I've probably felt about this book. I wanted to make one beautiful, perfect thing. But what you realise when you're in the midst of it is that you're not going to be great. You can't make something truly great. You can't make something truly perfect. The only greatness that is involved in that scenario is the fact that you do it anyway, hmm. knowing that you're going to fall short, but you've got to give it, you know, you've got to try anyway. And, uh, and that's what Clay is doing the whole time. So I think, yeah, you're blending fact and fiction all the time and you're blending the feel of, of a character as well and the feeling that's inside you. And in that sense, you know, there, there's always just a touch of autobiography in anything you write. When uh, Clay and his father are building the bridge um, and talking about, uh, you know, you, it's not going to be perfect, but you but you need to make the attempt, right? Um, mm -hmm. They they compare their work, the the bridge, to Michelangelo. And um, I think they say this: this is not going to be the David, right? 
Yeah, well, Michael Dunbar, Clay's father, grew up loving Michelangelo, and there was a sort of there's this idea that their parents they came from totally they're almost total opposites of each other uh, in a really symmetrical way, where Michael Dunbar was the only son of a single mother, and Penelope um, Penny Dunbar was the daughter of a, a single father. And uh, and one of them grew up playing the piano and hearing stories uh, and a father who read the Iliad and the Odyssey to her and the other one had a love of of great artworks, which is Michelangelo in the end, and um, or, or that built to Michelangelo. And and so he grew up loving and even and imitating and drawing Michelangelo sketches and things like that. And so, and he became obsessed with a book called The Quarryman, which was a, about the life and times of of Michelangelo. Which is also its subtitle was, and and it's, of course it's a fictitious book, but it, the subtitle is um, An Infinite Quarry of Greatness. And uh, and so they they're working on this bridge, and they and they and they do start to talk about the the Statue of David. And what I've always loved about the Statue of David is that if you go and see it, and I was lucky, I did research for this book, and it's when you never complain about your job. I went in January of 2008, I went to to Rome and to Florence, and I also went to Avignon in France to go and see the Pont de Garde bridge built by the Romans, and or the aqueduct built by the Romans. And uh, And, you know, to stand in front of the Statue of David in Florence in January when there are no tourists there, or they weren't that year anyway, and uh, and you get to stand in front of it on your own uh, for an hour or however long you want, really, and uh, at, towards closing at the, at the Academia Museum. But what is even better is that on the way to the David, there are some unfinished Michelangelo sculptures known as the prisoners or the slaves, and they're all still twisting their way out of the marble and they'll be like that forever, and and so for me, that's it's almost the perfect analogy of what we're always trying to do. I think we always have this idea that we want to we want to do beautiful things, we want to do great things, but we're still we're, we're still struggling our way towards that, and uh, and that's what their bridge came to symbolise. That you know they actually say it where Michael says to Clay. You know, it'd be great to create something like the David one day. And Clay says to him that we live the lives of the slaves. And rather than that being something terribly sad, I think it's it, it's actually an affirmation that it's okay. It's okay to not be perfect. It's okay to be in that struggle because there's something beautiful about that. And me personally, I actually prefer the statues of the slaves than I. I than the David. I just find more beauty in them and a, just a, a beautiful complexity, which I think is a better symbol for how we all are and how we all live. I wonder if you could follow up on that. What, why do you prefer the slaves to the David? It's, it's the, because they're still in the struggle? It's, it's incomplete? Yeah, definitely. And uh, to me, I think they're still moving, you know, and uh, they, you, you, they're still there's a, there's just such a to me there's a real life force in them that and I'm not you know I'm certainly not going to criticise 
the statue of David because it's like he's like a prince, as described in the book. Yeah, he's a he's the prince, the perfection gleaming up ahead. But um, but I, I think you know there, there's a, there's more a sense of motion in in the slaves, and there's more you know to me that I just find more heart in the in in those ones, and uh, and I like the idea of the possibility, and uh, because you know we're always becoming, and uh, and I feel like that's what those those sculptures are doing they're still they're caught they're frozen in that moment of you know in the period of becoming that um that i feel is, is such a an important thing i mean and in terms of this book i mean i i often my i'll often joke to people well it's not even really a joke but i often say you know there'll be 20 percent improvement in this book until the day i die <laughs> uh but um but there's a point where you have to say, right, I have to let it go now. I have to let it be in the world. And you can make something more perfect, but that doesn't mean you're making it more right. And uh, I think you realise at some point, if you keep going, you're actually going to hurt it more than you're going to help it. So you have to be okay with its imperfections because, you know, maybe that's how you write your next book, to atone for the sins of the last one. <laughs> Um, we're talking with Marcus Zuzak, author of the book Thief, and now Bridge of Clay. Let's take another break. When we come back, Marcus Zuzak, could you uh, read another passage uh, for us? Uh, sure. From the book. So uh, more with Marcus Zuzak following this break. For years, composer Lowell Lieberman was haunted by a Bach fugue going around and around in his head. Well, then he was asked to write a new piece for a concert that just happened to fall on Bach's birthday. We'll hear Lieberman's twist on Bach's fugue on the next Performance Today from APM. Tune in tonight at 9 here to Utah Public Radio. UPR's Spring Pledge Drive will be March 21st through the 28th, and we need volunteers. It's your chance to get involved and help us keep bringing you the radio you love. We'll walk you through the process of taking a pledge when you first arrive, so don't worry if it's your first time or if it's been a while since you've been in. We'll also have food and drink options available throughout the drive, and you'll have the opportunity to meet the staff, see our studios, and help make it all happen. You can sign up for available hours through our volunteer form at upr.org. Shady Grove, my On the next Shady On Being, banjo players Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn, partners in music and in life. When I heard that sound, I felt like I heard the beauty of authentic American culture. For me, what you actually heard was the truth. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. That's Sunday evening at 5 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of last year. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, Bridge of Clay is the new uh, family saga for Marcus Zuzak, author of the international bestseller The Book Thief. Bridge of Clay is the story of five brothers who bring each other up in a world run by their own rules. And as the Dunbar boys love and fight and learn to reckon with the adult world, they discover the moving secret behind their father's disappearance. Uh, so, Marcus Zuzak, I'd, uh, there was something struck me in this piece you wrote uh, for the paper in uh, Sydney there. This is in 2014. Uh, the film uh, at that point was coming out, uh, The Book Thief. And um, let me pull this up. You say... 
Now, on the eve of the, eve of the film's release here at home, many things have changed. I couldn't write that book now, even if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's funny. I've forgotten I'd written that. <laughs> um, and yeah, probably. I think I was so in in the head of Bridge of Clay by then that you know the book they felt a very long time ago, and uh, it feels even longer ago now. And it's a, it's a little bit. I, it's easier even when I think of my very first books that were published, um, and uh, and you, you just realise you're not the same person anymore. And even writing Bridge of Clay, a, a book that really you know took from to the end of 2005 up till now to to finish, you realise sometimes that you're a different person towards the end of writing a book than you were at the beginning. And uh, and you ask yourself, okay, is this consistent all the way through as a book? So, yeah, we're changing all the time, and uh, you know, and I definitely couldn't write the book thief now, and you know, and I, t- I can t- obviously tell you one thing, and that is that I don't want to write Bridge of Clay again mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> in a hurry. So, um, although you know, I think it's easy to look back and say, oh, that was actually a really good time when you know it didn't feel like that at the time you were doing it, but. Um, you know, I love writing and uh, I love, you know, and I love books and I love reading and I, I love being able to to imagine and, and I just love stories and, uh, and stories do change us and we're not the same when we finish them than when we started and, I, and, and maybe that's at the heart of, of what I said about, you know, not being able to, to write, you know, wouldn't be not being able to write the book Thief again or Bridge of Clay again. Now I think you're always wanting to move forward and uh, and see what the next challenge is. Before I have you read another passage from Bridge of Clay, I'm interested. Um, I think our audience will be interested. What did you think of the of the film? I'll just preface that uh, by, by saying when you signed the film rights, your you know your friends gave you some good advice, which was well the the studio might sign it, but the film may never get made. And so, uh, but it did get made. <laughs> what <clears throat> what did you think of the film? Uh, it's all, it is always a little bit like it's a little bit like, uh, and I think I might have even said it in that article if I was referring to my brother, which is, um, you know, people people will say, um, oh gee, you and your brother, they, you look exactly the same, I, uh, you look so much alike, and you go, you look at your brother and you look at yourself, you're like, I don't look like him, <laughs> surely, you know, things can't be that bad, and. Um, I mean, and you know, my, even my brother would laugh at me saying that. But uh, it is—it's—it's it's a little bit. It's certainly strange. It's—you've you, let something go. You've given it to somebody else, and then you've got to let them do what they're going to do with it creatively. And uh, you know, and the worst thing you can do to to a creative person is say, right, I'm I'm going to give you this project here. Here, this is you know, go and make it the best you can do. Do what, may, be really creative with it. But I want you to do this, 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 this. Oh, and, and don't forget this as well. Uh, I don't think you're going to get a good result. And so I, you know, the other advice I got was that if they do make it, you've got to make a decision on how hands-on you want to be with the film project and uh, and in in my case you know I was writing bridge of clay and and I consider screenplay writing as, as a, a very different animal different art form and so I handed it over and I thought okay let's see what you do with it and I think um, it's it's really funny well not funny but you've just got to you got to think of it as your book but it's not your movie it's mm-hmm. their movie and uh you know and 
And so when your your old football coach comes up to you in the street and says, "Oh, hey, Marcus, I saw you. I saw your movie." You know, you don't say, "Well, technically, it's not my movie." You know, I, you know, it's my book. You you just say, "Oh, thanks, Bill," <laughs> and uh, and and you move on. But um, you know, so it's been a while since I, I've seen the film, and and uh, and you know, it is. It's one of those strange things. It is a bit like looking at a photo of yourself and saying, I'm not quite sure if that's actually me. And, uh, you know, and there were some beautiful things and some things that I obviously would have done differently um, if I was involved. But, you know, as I said, they're two totally different things in a lot of ways. They've just got the same template. And, uh, you know, so and it was just a great adventure, really. And... uh, and so, you know, we'll see if any of that happens again. And I just don't ever, I, I never expect anything. I, mm. You know, I, I just keep my head down and do the work and, and you see what comes down the line. Well, we just have uh, two or three minutes left. I'd love to hear another passage from uh, Bridge of Clay. Mm-hmm. I thought what I might do is we, we had a little bit of the the brother brotherly, uh, the idea of the five boys being born, but I... Uh, uh, one of the, the seminal parts of the book is going into the backstory of the boy's parents, and uh, and um, they wouldn't exist if, it, obviously, I, I love the idea that we all have these backgrounds and things that happened before we were born that led to the actual miraculous thing that is our own existence. And so this is the story, a little bit of the story of their mum, Penelope, and how she came to Australia. And so this is the first chapter of part two, and it's called The Mistake Maker. Once in the tide of Dunbar Pass, there was a many-named woman. And what a woman she was. First, the name she was born with, Penelope Leshushko. Then the one christened at her piano, The Mistake Maker. In transit, they called her The Birthday Girl. Her self-proclaimed nickname was The Broken-Nosed Bride. And last, the name she died with, Penny Dunbar. Quite fittingly, she'd travelled from a place that was best described by a phrase in the books she was raised on. She came from a watery wilderness. Many years ago, and like so many before her, she arrived with a suitcase and a scrunched-up stare. She was astounded by the mauling light here. This city, it was so hot and wide and white. The sun was some sort of barbarian a Viking in the sky. It plundered, it pillaged, it got its hands on everything, from the tallest stick of concrete to the smallest cap in the water. In her former country, in the Eastern Bloc, the sun had mostly been a toy, a gizmo. There, in that far-off land, it was cloud and rain, ice and snow that wore the pants, not that funny little yellow thing that showed its face every now and again. Its warmer days were rationed. Even on the boniest, barren afternoons, there was a chance of moisture, drizzle, wet feet. It was communist Europe, but its slow descending peak. In a lot of ways, it defined her, escaping, alone, or more to the point, lonely. She would never forget landing here in sheer terror. From the air in a circling plain, the city looked at the mercy of its own brand of water, the salty kind, but on the ground... It didn't take long to feel the full force of its true oppressor. Her face was dappled immediately with sweat. Outside she stood with a flock, a herd, no, a rabble of equally shocked and sticky people. 
After a long wait, the lot of them were rounded up. They were corralled into a sort of indoor tarmac. The light globes were all fluorescent. The air was floor-to-ceiling heat. Name? Nothing. Passport? Shaprasha? Oh, Jesus. The man in uniform stood on his toes and looked above the heads and hordes of new immigrants. What a mob of hot and sorry faces. He found the man he wanted. Hey, George. Bilski. I've got one here for you. We'll have... Now the woman, who was, who was nearly 21 but appeared 16, gripped him firmly in the face. She held her grey-coloured booklet as if to strangle its edges of air. Passport. We'll have to uh, we'll have to end it there out of uh, out of perfect. time. Thank uh, you. Good. Um, so, Marcus Uzak, uh, author of the book Thief Now, Bridge of Clay. Marcus Uzak, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley Cowboy Rendezvous, March 1st through 3rd at Mountain Crest High School in Hiram, including Stephanie Davis, heard on public radio, the High Country Cowboys, American Idol contestant Kristen Harris, Doris Daly, and Ned Ledoux. Information at cvcowboy.org. And Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas in action. Online at utahumanities.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richville, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. Thank you to everyone who submitted art to our annual UPR Art Mug Contest. We had awesome work come in from all over Utah. And now that our submissions have closed, you have until February 22nd to vote for your favorite design. It's your vote that will determine the winner, and their design will be printed on this year's UPR Mug, available during our spring pledge drive. So what would you like to see on your mug? Tell us by going to upr.org and casting your vote.